Good morning. I'll be reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you, feed, ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Did I get it right? There I go. I got that. There it is. I got the switch backwards again. Thank you, Chris. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Matthew 25, we'll kind of eventually wind up there. I say eventually because we'll spend a few more minutes with Ezekiel, which was our Old Testament passage for today. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord God Almighty, the language of grace is like learning a new language for us. Even if we begin our lessons early, it grates against every other lesson we hear all our lives. So would you address us again today? Please remind us how in Jesus you delivered us in a new exodus. Would you persist in delivering the goods to us that an inheritance is not earned but pure gift? And in those moments of clarity, for we are caught up in the joy of you, would you render us helpful to communicate to all in need of the news yet to reach their ears? We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say. Making time is an art exhibit in the modern museum of art. 
And, and this exhibit represents the work and the recognition of Nicole Fleetwood and her award-winning book titled Making Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Here, here's a description of the exhibit. This major exhibition explores the work of artists within United States prisons and the centrality of incarceration to contemporary art and culture, featuring art made by people in prisons and work by non-incarcerated artists concerned with the state of repression, erasure, and imprisonment. Marking time, art in the age of mass incarceration, highlights more than 35 artists, including American artists Tamika Cole, Russell Craig, James Yahya Huff, Jesse Krims, Mark Lofney, Gilberto Rivera, and Sable Elise Smith. The exhibition has been updated to reflect the growing COVID-19 crisis in U.S. prisons, featuring new works by exhibition artists made in response to the ongoing emergency. According to the Collins Dictionary, marking time, the phrase marking time describes this, is described this way. If you are marking time, you are doing something that is not particularly useful or interesting while you wait for something more important or interesting to happen. Like, he's really just marking time until he's old enough to leave following Jesus, a subject that we hope becomes part and parcel of every time we get together, it includes and entails not just marking time. We are not just marking time. In fact, sadly, folks think that all we're doing is marking time until the return of Jesus, that we're really not doing anything useful or helpful. We're just waiting for something to change till it's time to leave. But following Jesus actually entails uh, learning a new language, learning how to mark time, and in learning how to mark time and a new language, we learn the language of grace. So, for example, kind of part of uh, learning a new language has been for years for us in, in learning something of what we would call a new liturgy. Now, liturgy can be a scary word to us. It's, it's a word that if you have grown up in church and you've grown up in low church settings, and so you understand that I'm not talking about Garth Brooks's low places. I'm just talking about low in distinction from high. And so if you've been around enough that you know that there are distinctions in between low church and high church. And, and High church is what we grew up hearing as being ultra-formal. I would be out of place standing behind a pulpit or a lectern in a high church service because I don't have a robe on. That would be a distinction some would make. It's maybe a, a, a silly one or a minor one, but it is a distinction that would be made. So in a high church, there are certain features of a high church liturgy, that is, what it looks like when you get together for church and have worship. And then, then there are low church, again, not low as in less, not low as in diminished, low as in different or distinct. Low church being that you could wear your shorts to church on Sunday morning, and no one, well, maybe a few would look at you askance, but, but, but normally it's, it's a little bit more free and a little bit more, uh, um, 
well, I, I hate to say the word liberal, but it is. I, I, I don't mean that in sort of a political or ideological way. I just mean we're a little bit more free. Low church means more free church. That's the other description, free church. And most of us, many of us, grew up in that particular context. We grew up in low church, free church traditions. If you weren't a Baptist, you probably grew up in maybe one of those. That's the majority in, in, in our state, for example, or uh, worship in what we call free church, the free church tradition. But just because we worship in a free church uh, tradition doesn't mean we don't have order. So I, I, it took me a long time to learn this because my friends who I uh, gathered uh, who were participating in what we call high church would say, well, you don't have a liturgy. You don't have an order to things. And I go, wait a minute. I've been in a Baptist church since I was in a cradle. And I'm telling you what, you don't defy that bulletin. You change anything in that bulletin, and I'm going to tell you what, someone is going to point it out to you if you left out a song, a prayer, if you mistyped, misprinted anything, including the announcements, someone's going to tell you that bulletin is sacrosanct. You can't change a thing once it's been printed. That is how we do our liturgy. Liturgy is a word that really literally means work of the people. It is the practice of the people in worship. It's been a word used for millennia to describe what happens when Christian people get together for worship. And so we shouldn't be afraid or fear a word that we scarcely, if ever, used like grace. One form of liturgy that we sought to introduce many years ago, I I don't even know how to keep track now. I, I think it was probably about 20 years ago. It coincided with a surgery I had uh, in, in uh, 2003. But we introduced the Christian calendar. And in, in this habit, we learn something different about time than maybe we had thought about before. Because heretofore, in low church traditions, time is marked by uh, seasonal holidays. In the Christian calendar, time is marked by the story of God and Jesus. So when we introduced that, we found out that this particular liturgical form annually tells the story of Jesus from Advent until Christ the King Sunday. 52 weeks out of the year, we are hopefully framing what time means according to the story of God and Jesus. It doesn't mean that we look askance or we poo-poo the calendar. It's that when we get together in church, can I say poo-poo? When, when it's when we get to church, in, in low church you can, by the way. When you, when you get to church, what it means is that when we're telling the story of God and Jesus, that becomes the primary story that we hope people learn and understand. It's not that we are against Independence Day or Memorial Day or Labor Day or President's Day or any other day. It's that when we are gathered together and we're talking about time and what's important, well, the time that's important to us is learning how to live in God's time, in God's story, in the way of Jesus. And so we have introduced that. It's the story of grace. And so we begin next Sunday with the season of Advent. It's the Sunday and the season celebrating the second coming of Jesus, even if it also 
points to the first coming. So it is the season of anticipation, of expectation, followed up by Christmas, which is the 12-day celebration of the incarnation, the Word become flesh, followed by the season of Epiphany, which is the revealing of Jesus, Simeon, and who receives Jesus the first time he goes to the temple. And Simeon says, I can now die in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Epiphany is the unveiling or the revealing that the Messiah has come. And we spend that season of Epiphany looking at the stories in the life of Jesus where he had authority over all things around him. And then we enter the season of Lent beginning with Ash Wednesday. And the season of Lent is 40 days of considering the life of Jesus from the time the scripture says, and he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, which is a euphemism to say he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And so the season of Lent is thinking about what is Jesus doing from that moment until his crucifixion. And so we think about all that Jesus gave up for us in that season. So we look at stories around Jesus' life as the animosity and the intensity presents itself where people are opposed to the love of God represented in Jesus and ultimately can't stand it, and so we kill him. Followed by Easter, the Resurrection Day, where it's celebrated for another 50 days. Easter celebrated for 50 days where new converts were discipled into the story of God and how time works and that God did what Paul said he did when the fullness of time uh, had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so these early converts who understood resurrection meant something were then discipled for 50 days into the story of God and, and and baptized and followed the Lord uh, in, in that story, in that ark, if you will. And then that period includes the ascension of Jesus, the celebration of his installation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and followed by Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. And then in the season that we've been in ever since June, the season after Pentecost, culminating in today, Christ the King Sunday. And so hearing and receiving the promise of God in this form of story is something that forms us into a new awareness that we are part of a different kind of time and that we are engaging or learning a different kind of language. So I want to know, how's your Latin? One nation under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. And God we trust was added to our currency one year later. But long before both of those things took place, not a hundred years ago, our forebears in 1782 added or inscribed on our country's seal and on our money, E Pluribus Unum, out of the many, one. So you've been carrying around your first Latin lesson since you got your first penny. You may not have known that you were learning Latin, but I suspect that you learned Latin this way. I saved the object lesson for the adults. You, you, if you're like me in the room, maybe those of you who are older didn't learn this, but I, we were always infatuated with, with dinosaurs, and, and what we learned early on were the Latin names for all of the dinosaurs. So we learned this is Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's your first Latin. You just didn't know it was a lesson. 
Tyrannosaurus means tyrannical lizard. So now you can use that in some conversation. You can, you can just wow people with your Latin. I know what it is to be a tyrannical lizard. Or maybe you like the second part of that, Rex. Tyrannosaurus Rex, tyrannical lizard king. The reason this kind of caught my attention, I don't know, should I leave the object lesson? You have another one on your bulletin. This all came to me when I was looking for a graphic for the front of the bulletin for Christ the King Sunday. And and what you have on the cover of your bulletin is artwork from the eastern branch of the church. And and just so that we we don't really have time to do a a long church history, but before the 10th century, there was one Christian church, and in the 10th century, there was a big split between the West and the East, long before anything about a Baptist ever caught anyone's imagination. There was the Western church and the Eastern church, and the Eastern church had a particular form of art, iconic imagery. And this is by title, the title of this piece of art, Christian art, is Christus Rex. Now, do you see my puzzlement? I learned Tyrannosaurus Rex when I was a wee boy. And then I go looking for an image for Christ the King Sunday, and I find the title of this piece, Christus Rex. Didn't it sound a little bit weird that king can be used of a tyrannical lizard and King Jesus? Well, it didn't cause you evidently as much trouble as it did me. Sermon's blown. Sorry. What we, what we do discover in something of this silly but important illustration is, is that sometimes words are used with different senses or different meanings. And we talk about learning a different language, that is the language of grace. We're learning what words and actions that follow mean in the story of God, that is the story of Jesus. And so when we think about Rex, we can't think that early on I learned of this frightening creature that I'll never see. It's concocted from imaginations and skeletal remains. But the same description of Rex for this animal applied to Jesus can't mean that Jesus is a tyrannical king. Rex means something different. So Tyrannosaurus Rex is different than Christus Rex. You with me? We have to learn the language distinctions when we're talking about the story of God. And Ezekiel received from the Lord something to communicate to Israel. And when we get... To uh, Ezekiel 34, verse 15, we get this. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. When God describes that he would search for his sheep Like a shepherd, the word shepherd carries a different sense than it did just 10 verses before. 
12 verses before. At the opening of Ezekiel 34, here's what we get. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, you shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? The sense of the two words is different. God says, I'm going to search for my sheep like a shepherd. And he says, but you shepherds that are my representatives, you've been feeding yourselves and not the sheep. The sense is different. God can in no wise ever be considered a tyrannical king. But we have to learn the difference of the senses used for the same words. So on the one hand, shepherd refers to what God is like in his search for his people lost and scattered. And on the other hand, the shepherds are described as those who feed on the sheep rather than feed the sheep. The line to keep in mind in Ezekiel is, I myself will search for my sheep. That is the gospel promise. If there is a gospel promise in the Old Testament, it is here in Ezekiel 34. I myself will search for my sheep. That is to say, God is looking for you. God is looking for you. God is looking out for you. God is looking for you. And from that point on, the description of what God would do for Israel is set up intentionally in stark contrast to what the leaders of Israel have been doing for her people. Israel wasn't alone in referring to their leaders as shepherds. It was common among that era and area. They referred to their leaders as sheep. They're also from time to time referred to as princes. But what Ezekiel's message capitalizes on is the image of a faithful shepherd has been undermined by the shepherds put in charge of the people. So imagine having to unwind your image of a faulty shepherd so that you could embrace the notion of the good shepherd. You you with me for that? Now, I I don't mean any... um, Uh, oversimplification of this. But you know, when we celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day, a couple of holidays on the regular calendar, we sometimes have to remember that there are some people whose experiences of mother and father have not been the thing to idealize. Yes? And that in order for them to understand the fatherliness of God or the motherliness of God, by the way, that's also in the Old Testament in case you think I've gone liberal. Both of them are there, of the female and the male representations of God's care for people are present in the Old Testament. If we're trying to help them understand the character of God, sometimes we have to unwind the vision of mother that they have received at the hands of an earthly mother or an earthly father so that we can help them to see that what God is like, he's like something altogether different than that. So if you're in Israel and you are wasting away in captivity and you hear the prophet start talking about shepherds, immediately your mind is racing to the princes that got you in faulty alliances that landed you in captivity. And all you can think about is how in the world could God be anything like a shepherd? Look what they did to me. You with me still? So now we have to say, listen, those faulty leaders 
are not accurate representatives of the faithful God who gave himself for you. Just so you know, shepherds here, the shepherds that are described here are the political leaders. Not the prophets and the priests. If they're referred to in the same breath as princes, the reference is to their leadership positions among the people. They're generally considered at this particular juncture in Israel's history as puppet kings. And Israel was given a message, stop just marking time. You've been in captivity. You don't know for how long. Quit just marking time. God's message from the prophet is you're part of a bigger story. God's going to do something for you. He's going to seek you out. He's going to rescue you. He's going to retrieve you. And he's going to, well, you, there, there are lots of things that happen here. And, and it's found later in that chapter 34. It goes like this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. So this reference to Israel's leaders as shepherds being to her political leaders and and often again referred to as princes means Israel has experienced through her kings what Samuel told the people her kings would do. So you have to go all the way back to Samuel to see that this is actually fulfillment. For when the people got tired of Samuel's aging and his sons who were unfaithful, remember what Israel said, give us a king like all the other nations. Samuel was distraught, upset, ready to start over. What God say to Samuel? Do you remember? They've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. So we'll give them a king like all the other nations, and here's what they will do. By the time you get to Ezekiel 34, what has happened is exactly what God said would happen. You'll never find a leader like me. You'll never find a leader like me. It's a lesson for us, folks, because it says clearly that there is never going to be an earthly leader like God for us. And anyone who would persuade us otherwise, John taught us that that's the false prophet asking us to worship the beast. What we find here in Ezekiel is a pre-description of the good shepherd in John 10, Jesus. I will shepherd my sheep. And so in John 10, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, doesn't take the life of the sheep. So here is this picture. This is promise. And Jesus, the Word made flesh, is God with us. Jesus didn't feed on the people, but instead He fed the people. 4,000, 5,000, He fed them. Jesus did not view people as for Himself, but He gave Himself for the people. Do you see how people, even us, need to learn a new language capture a new vision. We become so saturated with the images of some, some 
temporal human leader being able to provide for us all the things that God will, and it will never happen. Only God can do what God does. So no earthly leader will ever be for us as God has been for us in Jesus. And that brings us to our Matthew passage. You wondered when we would get there. Grace is a very difficult lesson or difficult language to learn. Let me say that again. Grace is a very difficult language to learn. It's much more a harder reality for us to accept. The language that we have learned from childhood is this stuff of reward and punishment, of earnings and deserving. Now we're told not just to build our resumes, but to build our brands. Our goals now, our pursuits are to avoid being canceled and instead become an influencer. And we carry that into our DNA, our very DNA, into the new world of grace that God gives us. So much... And so difficult is it that we don't often hear what's embedded in the parable of the sheep and the goats without filtering it through the lens of punishment and reward from earning and demerits. My friend Jason wrote and put it this way. I thought it was good enough to crib. If you want proof that deep down we want the comfort of merits and demerits, rather than the indiscriminate acceptance of Easter, if you want evidence that in the end we prefer the golden rule instead of the gospel, you need look no further than the fact that Matthew 25 is a favorite parable. I'll add this. In in seeking to understand the meaning of the parable, people often engage in debates as to who qualifies for the, as recipients for the gestures of mercy. The commentaries spend an, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to define who the least are in the passage. Is it everybody or just the least in the church? I mean, great debates and arguments have been harvested over this issue. And I'm telling you that that very issue that becomes debatable is actually an illustration that we are rooted in our reward and punishment mentality. For to find a way to try to limit what's going on in the activities of the sheep and the goats in their gestures of mercy is to evaluate who's worthy of the gestures And that's only found when our lens is always reward and punishment. The the difficulty with the language of grace and its hard reality is that it fights against our every normal impulse. So you can tell that when the debate becomes who's worthy of the gestures of mercy more than paying attention to the opening lines of the parable, we've probably erred. So let me remind you the very first bit of the parable. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Before we ever get to the different ways that the sheep and the goats go about doing good, and they both, by the way, go about doing good. It's a misreading if we don't think that's the case. 
we miss that the language of grace has a word in the parable. If we're learning the words of grace, there is a word of grace in the parable. You ready for the word? The word is inherit. Before we wonder who was seen or unseen, when did we see you, who was seen or unseen, whether the issue is sins of omission or the sins of commission, of neglect or rejection, the frame of grace is set with the language of inheritance. No one earns an inheritance. No one earns an inheritance. No one. It is pure gift. And the announcements that precedes the descriptions of the gestures of mercy, the acts of grace inheritance. What the sheep and the goats have in common is that they are both found doing good. What the problem is, the goats are uptight because according to their own records, they have done enough. Their question is, when did we see you? It wasn't to say they didn't do anything. It's that they had already built their resume. They had already put their brand together. They had already made themselves influencers. They were already telling people, look how good we are. Look at all the good we've done. And the good they've done was according to their understanding that it's all about rewards and punishment. And if you do enough good, you get rewarded. And if not, you get punished. And that is our natural order of understanding the world. But grace is points us to a different kind of time and a different kind of language. The sheep, on the other hand, the sheep are simply going about life in the joy of the shepherd. And the new understanding of time and the new, new language that they have learned of grace orders their lives and leaves them always, ready? always gesturing toward mercy and grace without stopping to see who deserves it. Learning God's time and learning the language of grace means we're always gesturing toward mercy and grace, not because we've sat down to say, how can we be merciful and graceful, but we have received from the shepherd mercy and grace, so reorienting our lives that we are done with reward and punishment, and all we're ready to do is enjoy being found by the good shepherd. And being found by the good shepherd means that all the things we now do are in response to the goodness, mercy, and grace we've encountered. That is, we don't have to have anyone telling us. If someone has to tell you or instruct you or me in the fact that we should show mercy and grace, it's time to go back and hear from the good shepherd again. If we have to be told that we need to encounter the world differently through the language of grace, it's time to go back and listen to the good shepherd again. If if we think that dispensing or gesturing toward mercy and grace is incumbent or required by the recipient of the mercy and grace, we need to go back and listen to the Good Shepherd again. Because we have defaulted to reward and punishment again. 
all over again. We've fallen away. We've fallen back. And we need to hear the good news. Listen, folks, the, 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 I hope the one reason you come back to church certainly is for fellowship, certainly is for great Bible study, but I hope you come back because every week we need to hear the good news. We need to hear the good news that God is enough for us. That we're not coming to church so that we can be enough for God. And we're not performing at a particular level so we can be enough for God. But God is enough for us. That's the good news. I will shepherd my sheep, he says. And he doesn't say, because they deserve it. He actually says, their conditions are such that they can't achieve it. Lost, scattered, in need. That is the language of grace. That is learning to live in God's time. In other words, the read properly, the sheep have been set free from believing they must be enough to please God and have instead accepted what has been prepared for them. Come you, blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. We, we, are, we, we need to understand that the call of God, that is the way that we are addressed, is from the foundation. God has always been for us. From the foundation means always been for people. And not rooted in our performance. God has spent what we know of time persuading us that he is enough. And when we refuse that God is enough, we find ourselves in a place he's not prepared for us. That's how the parable works, by the way. Did you see that? When, when, when we recognize that God is enough for us, we have that place that's been prepared. When we have decided that we aren't enough. When we reject God's enoughness for us, we find ourselves in a place not prepared for us. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, to the place prepared for? The devil and his angels. The that place wasn't prepared for us. Finding ourselves in that place is because we've refused God's enoughness. Not because God planned for you to be there. I'll let you soak on that one for a while. We may not like to talk about that place, but in the parable it is reserved for the obvious resistors to God's time and God's grace. Like the artist in Nicole Fleetwood's book, we've been set free from just marking time. And for those of us who are in Christ, we discern that we're living in God's time, learning God's language that inspires our gestures of mercy and grace without... Worrying about our enoughness or the enoughness of those around us because God is enough. 
the parable has been used as a, a parable of assurance. My friend Jason concluded some thoughts I thought might be worth con- kind of concluding here, that here we are being immersed in God's time, learning the language of grace, knowing that we have to unwind lots of stuff because what we are wired with is so different that sometimes we need some assurance. The assurance that Jesus Christ abides with you lies not in your merits outmeasuring your demerits. The assurance that Jesus Christ abides with you is for you. It lies in your lack. You're not enough. The guarantee that you're not alone, the guarantee of God's blessing upon you is not your awesome list of accomplishments, but your inadequacy. Because Jesus puts it plain to both the sheep and the goats alike, he makes his office at the end of your rope. Has the treadmill of good works alone left you exhausted and starving? Do you thirst for the kind of faith and joy you see in others? Are you sick of all your best efforts to be a good sheep? Or are you just sick? Is there something in your past that leaves you feeling naked and ashamed? Are you in a relationship locked in resentment? Are you captive to abuse or addiction? Do you feel out of place wondering what the... I can say that, can I? We're low church. Wondering what the you're even doing here. If so, hear the good news. Jesus Christ is present to you in your poverty. And he is enough. Would you pray with me?